You're listening to Hire Through Retire, a health and wealth podcast with Voya leaders Bill Harmon and Heather Lavallee, tackling all things from 401ks to HSAs and everything in between. We're talking to the best and brightest in the industry to bring you the latest in health, wealth, and investment trends in the workplace. Come along with us on our journey to help all Americans become well-planned, well-invested, and well-protected. Welcome back to Hire Through Retire, a health and wealth podcast. I'm here today again with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Bill Harmon. Bill, I got to say, don't ever leave me again in co-hosting. You made me do it you know, all by myself with our friend, uh, Jeff Simony. So it's great to have you back. Well, I tell you what, it's great to have an awesome bullpen like Jeff, but it is great to be back. And uh, I tell you, we're here to talk about a really important topic for really all employers today, and, and that's the financial health of their workforce. You know, with the pandemic and now concerns about inflation, the importance of financial health has come to light even more. So we thought we'd bring in an expert to share some insight as an industry pro on the topic. Joining us today is Matt Ball. He's the vice president and head of workplace market development at the Financial Health Network. That's a company that unites industries and business leaders, policymakers, innovators, and visionaries in a shared mission to improve financial health for us all. Matt is focused on building relationships with employers who are committed to advancing financial health for their workforce, and he believes it takes a movement to improve workers' financial lives, connecting HR and benefits leaders with the Financial Health Network's expertise and solutions to create a strong financial health ecosystem. In his role, Matt leads the development of new capabilities, strategies, and partnerships to help employers achieve their financial health goals. So Matt, welcome. We are thrilled to have you join us today. Thanks for being here. Yeah, Bill, thank you uh, to you, Heather and Voya for asking me to come, you know, talk about financial health, which is what I love to do. Yeah. And and, I tell you what, and everyone is really talking about this. So Matt, as a nationally recognized thought leader in workplace financial wellness, we know this topic is near and dear to you. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background and and how you got started down this path. And I can tell your passion for talking with you in the past. So maybe share a little bit. Yeah. So my career is the typical millennial nonlinear sort of lurching from experience to experience. You know, I grew up in a a working class household. My mom is a a home health nurse. My dad was a small business owner, small janitorial business. He's now a security guard at the high school that I graduated from. So I've always really recognized the value and importance of work. And when individuals have dignity and opportunities, uh, my experience, they almost always flourish. This led me, of course, to college, then to uh, law school, where I uh, was a labor and employment lawyer focusing on collective bargaining, as well as variety of employment law matters, ERISA, et cetera. So I really got a chance to sort of understand how the law and other aspects really impact people's lives in material ways. I then fell in love and moved to Maine, which is where I'm based out of now. And through that love, I ended up meeting some really phenomenal HR leaders uh, and was an HR executive for Maine Health, which is a large health system here in New England. When I really got inside the HR space, it's when I became obsessed with wellness programs and really understanding the promise um, and the shortcomings, because they are by no means perfect. And there's huge opportunities to continue to improve the outcomes for people in those programs. Through that, I built some relationships with Prudential Financial and then went over to Prudential and worked on a health and analytics team for a bit. And then as Pru was really ramping up its work in financial wellness, I started to uh, lead teams there that worked with large employers. This then connected me to the Financial Health Network. And what really um, was really interesting about them is I've always sort of appreciated that improving financial health is really a people-centric approach and recognizing that while people gain a lot of financial health benefits through their workplace, 
their lives are bigger than that. And it exists outside of that. And what FHN does is it really tries to take an ecosystem view to understand how banking relationships, workplace, healthcare, all the spheres within which people's financial lives are impacted, how they work together, uh, and at times how they work against each other. And so in that Work Care Financial Health Network, I have a chance to really think about solutions that improve the material lives of everyday people. And to do that, you really have to understand the broader ecosystem. And of course, my passion is about workplace benefits and the ability for them to be a force for good in people's lives. Matt, thank you. That's really fascinating background and how you got to where you are today very much seems to be driven by a passion for helping others, uh, a passion for understanding the connectedness of people and how that ultimately impacts their overall financial wellness. I'm going to jump right in with the first question and just say, you know, we've seen some uh, earlier data from your team that showed that employers who have seen evidence of employee hardship as a result of COVID-19 are most likely to spend more on their financial health benefits. Can you tell us a little bit more about what your team learned with this data and what does it mean for employers today? Yeah, absolutely, Heather. To answer this question, you sort of have to, I think, understand the history of the evolution of workplace financial wellness benefits. When these sort of concepts first came into the space for employers, it was really rooted in the retirement plan and education, right? You saw some coaching models evolve. And through that sort of recommitment to understanding how those two areas really impact people's lives, employers really started to think more about, well, how do we start to think about building programs in part and parcel with their broader wellness initiatives to really find ways to improve outcomes in their health plans and their financial retirement plans, whatever the case may be. Then COVID happened. And you know the survey you referenced was a survey that we put out right as COVID was really ramping up. And what we saw was it removed the last remaining barrier that may have existed to the view into people's lives. And we're talking today over Zoom, and we would probably still be talking today over Zoom, even if COVID hadn't happened. What it did is that people had an unprecedented window into the lives of their workforce. And this included both blue-collar, white-collar, knowledge workers, frontline workers. It was a real focus. And through that, you actually saw that individuals are struggling in areas beyond just retirement savings and beyond just, you know, sort of the education gap and the financial uh, literacy gap. What they really saw was, oh, there are daily challenges that folks are facing that what we've been doing as an employer don't seem to be meeting those needs. COVID had in some ways a really humanizing effect on the workplace because it gave folks access to a, a view of their workforce that they just hadn't always seen. They certainly knew it. They felt it in their own personal lives. And I think that really uh, generated a lot of, of accelerated interest in financial wellness programs where, you know, back two years ago, we were still having conversations about why it matters. Those conversations are no longer happening. Everyone knows it matters. Now it's like, what do I do to actually uh, improve? Now that more employers are willing to spend money on these programs, which, you know, a lot of freemium versions were in the market prior to the last few years, I think you're seeing a real renewed interest in financial wellness programs and really designing them in a way that's as responsive as possible to the needs of the workforce. Matt, as you talked about, and, and you know, here we have a window into one another's worlds, and of course, I'm fascinated to know what, what those books on your bookshelf are all about, right? It's that, it's that window into one another's lives. You talked about that, that you know, pre-pandemic, it, it was this a little bit more of a, just a view into that workplace, right, of financial health really tied to retirement and your workplace benefits. But as you talk about this acceleration in the middle of the pandemic, what are some of the trends and innovations that we're seeing? and some of the most popular solutions that employers are putting in place now? And then you know, why do you think it's so important for employers to choose the right solution you know, at the workplace? What, what's at stake in all of this? 
Yeah, that's a it's a it's a great and deep question. Most of these books on here, by the way, are from my wife, so I don't want to presume okay. that, I'm, that I'm read. <laughs> that I'm as well-read as she is. But I would say that uh, sort of a couple of things. Number one, I think there's been a real mind shift change towards improving the daily financial behaviors of workers. And I think that the focus on retirement plans is never going to go away. It's how most of us gain access to retirement benefits. But recognizing that the strength and the health of a retirement plan is largely dependent upon the ability for people to save adequately and to use those plans for their intended purpose. And so I think employers are really looking at how do we actually help provide solutions in the day-to-day financial challenges of people. And you know, some of the things that we've seen is we actually saw between 2020 and 2021, financial health of the US population improve, which is really counterintuitive when you think about that. And one of the things that we saw that really contributed to that was access to more short-term liquidity. And so we saw that folks were saving more, and particularly for the short term, we saw that the government in one-time intervention programs and stimulus payments reached largely those that were struggling, and that folks used those to build their savings, to pay down debt, to really manage their daily financial lives. And so I think that was also something that employers really started to see is, oh, for people to actually take advantage of the solutions that we are offering, we have to make sure that their base is really stable. And if they're operating from a place of precarity and instability, It is a fool's errand to try to think that they're going to maximize the benefits across the portfolio that an employer has. It just intuitively makes no sense and the behavioral science really backs that up. And so I think there's a real movement towards how do we really think about building a stable base, which is why you're seeing conversations around compensation as a financial health input, right? It's the essential building block of financial health. You have to have money coming in before you can even talk about all the other stuff. We've all seen those aggregate stats about you know, 40% or 50% don't have $400 in savings, which is a liquidity problem, right? That's fundamentally what it is. And so you're seeing solutions like earn wage access, payroll collateralized loans, hardship funds, emergency savings, both in plan and out of plan, really picking up momentum. A lot of questions about those solutions. I don't want to be Pollyannish about it because I think there are, those are new and there's lots of questions remain to be seen. But helping folks manage their daily lives really seems to be where a lot of the energy is. And again, I think it's really about building that solid base to do that. And so it matters in no small part because those in the job market have never had more choice (laughs) and they've never had more options. We've seen a lot of folks that are leaving, you know, frontline jobs in retail or hospitality or the restaurant industry, going back to school, pursuing alternative degrees. There's an upskilling and reskilling momentum that seems to be happening. Uh, Lots more work needs to be done there, of course. But I think people are really recognizing that they want more out of their job than just getting by. They want to find a place where they can thrive and they can be successful and they can be treated as humans with dignity and respect. And so, you know, the first manifestation of that is how are you bringing people and how are you providing the financial stability that's so important um, in our daily lives? There's so much there. I love what you said. You really need to get to even to kind of remove some of the paralysis. We've had on the podcast, some discussions on student loan debt. And that's yeah. a big one because, gosh, you want me to save in my retirement plan, but I, I'm digging out of student loan debt. And there's so much of getting me even to then now let's talk about the next step and, and thriving. And the other point you made, which is really interesting, there are a lot of options. And so another form of or something that could cause levels of paralysis is having so many options. And so while employers could be well-intended and they're trying to get people there, all of these options, if not really communicated properly can become a bit paralyzing and really not um, optimized. It really has to be some good, solid communication. So let's talk about that for a minute. You know, when it 
When it comes to participation or engagement in all of these benefits, what the average employee has 17 different benefits decisions to make, and they typically make them sort of one at a time, independent of each other, not interdependently. How can regular communication and I guess constant reach outs to employees, how can that help and really get to where the employer wants them to be? And how can employers help in getting the overall success of these programs to increase? Yeah, I talk about this as the field of dreams fallacy, which is just because you build a program does not mean people will come. And indeed, the engagement numbers across these programs really bear that out. I think there's a fundamental question, though, Bill, that's implicit in your uh, framing there, which is, how do we know what people need? (laughs) And why are we assuming that what's available is actually what people need? And so I often talk to folks to say that if you don't understand what your workers need, then you're just, you're throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall, hoping some of it sticks. And if you're trying to communicate to folks about things that they don't necessarily need, particularly in their lives when they're busy, when there's a lot of choice, it's a recipe for low engagement. And so to me, I think one of the big fundamental problems that has plagued HR in large workplaces and small workplaces and all workplaces is that lack of dialogue and understanding with your workforce about what do they actually need? Because you may see that, hey, 25% of my workforce is really struggling with this particular area and I've got a solution. And you may have 20% engagement with that solution. To me, that may be the sign of a successful program, uh, especially if the 20% that are using it are the 25% that need it. And so I think it's really hard for employers to evaluate the strength of their programs when they don't actually have a good enough baseline to know what do our folks actually need. So I go back to say like part of the engagement problem is actually making sure you're matching the solutions to the actual needs of your workforce and doing that in a really systematic way. When I was an HR leader, we used to do benefit satisfaction surveys, and I will be fully transparent. My biases, those are about the most worthless thing you can do to actually know if what you're providing meets the needs of your workforce. Because you're basically asking people to say, do you like what we already have? Well, yeah, maybe they do. That's the same problem you have with like compensation surveys. Are you satisfied with your comp? Well, who's going to be satisfied? Everyone wants to get paid a little bit more. I think you've got to think about alternative ways to really get under the hood. And so that's both thinking about your HR data strategy. What's your survey process? What's your focus groups? How are you actually getting the voice of the workforce in there? From that, I think what you've seen is that companies have, that have really invested in that, you know, I think they have the, they're better positioned to drive more meaningful utilization. I also think, frankly, those are organizations, some of whom we work with, that are shrinking the options they provide because they were spending a lot of money on things that turns out most of their workforce didn't need. And so I think there's a real opportunity here to invest more in the front end of diagnosing and listening to your workforce to decrease the expenditure on the back end of providing solutions that don't really match the needs of your population. Matt, you've given us just such amazing uh, insights today. And I just think if I tie together some of these last few points around the importance of really getting the voice of the workforce, and then understanding that at the end of the day, what employees want is to thrive and to be treated with dignity and have financial stability. So in that context, I'd like to ask one final question. You know, we know that employers have long prioritized a variety of health and financial benefits as a way to help employees and you know, certainly uh, mean to do it with great intent. But many experts believe that there is so much more that needs to be done to make sure employees have healthy, happy, and financially stable lives. For our listeners who are eager to do more uh, to help their employees' financial health, what's the one thing or first step you would suggest they focus on as a way to get more actionable on their approach? It's a great question, Heather. So I would, I would say that the impulse to sprint towards solutions needs to be redirected to talking to your people. You know, large employers obviously have unique challenges, but not insurmountable. And I think a lot of times that impulse to go towards the next shiny object, uh, the cool innovation, the cool feature is a natural impulse because it shows progress and momentum forward. 
But I really think that if that's the approach you take and you don't have a more systematic way of understanding the needs of your workers, what you're doing is you're putting really cool fixtures on top of really bad plumbing. And it doesn't matter how great the fixtures are, if that plumbing is broken, no one's going to avail themselves, at least not in a meaningful way to do that. I also think, particularly for companies that are publicly traded, you know, there's an increased focus from the investors as well as others looking at how do you actually demonstrate the value that you're providing to your people through ESG metrics and other things of that nature. So I think HR needs to invest more deeply and intentionally in data. I think they need to be thinking of themselves as not just people operation leaders, but as people analytics uh, has to be an increasing focus. I think lots of teams have data teams, but are they really focused and competent to understand how to diagnose and how to tie these things together? The other thing that I would say, and this is an interesting point, is the intersections of health and wealth, right? I think that's a really challenging space for employers. I'm biased and I will put that on the table. I think that uh, starting with the financial side is far more effective and actually driving more meaningful outcomes on the health side for a couple of reasons. Number one, there are things you can do in the financial benefits you can't replicate in the health benefits. So for example, I can auto-enroll people into certain financial solutions that we know will have long-term value and benefit, including even some movements to uh, auto-enroll into things like short-term savings accounts. On the flip side, I can't teleport you and Bill to see your PCP every year to get an annual screening. I can't do those things. So what I can do, though, is also recognize, and this is where the research of Carrie Leanna at University of Pittsburgh is really influential, which is we know that financial strain in particular is toxic. It's just pure negative toxicity. And we also know that that toxicity manifests in changing the cognitive functions within your brain. And as more employers move towards consumer-driven health plans and health models, implicit in that is you are assuming people are able to make really good and informed decisions. And what we've seen, that financial instability prevents them from making the types of decisions that would actually lend to better outcomes on the health side. So it's a bit of a bank shot, and I don't want to presume that I'm an expert, but to me, it seems as though there's lots more opportunities up front to really address the financial stability that can then manifest in better decision-making and better outcomes on the health side. And of course, there are things you can do on the health side. You can redesign your premium structures. You can think about how do you default folks into certain types of plans, helping them navigate that decision point. So I think all of those things are part and parcel of this, which is we've just got to be appropriately patient, but also vigilant and moving forward to meet the needs and being really committed to understanding what those programs do for people. Boy, thank you so much, Matt. And I tell you, this is such a great topic because the war for talent is real. Those employers that are scratching their head and wondering what the right formula is, it's not the same for every employer, but to have the passion, the passion that you have to go and really find that formula and ask, that is that is really paramount, particularly in, as this war for talent, we think will continue for a while. So, hey, I, I really want to thank you for your time and, and really those great insights. I know that I'll probably be reaching out to you again and picking your brain because uh, this really is an engaging topic. And I also want to thank our listeners. We hope you learned some uh, new insights today. And as always, thank you for joining us. Stay well. This information is provided by Voya for your education only. Neither Voya nor its representatives offer tax or legal advice. Any opinions expressed within do not necessarily reflect those of the Voya family of companies or its representatives and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Please consult your tax or legal advisor before making a tax-related investment or insurance decision.